Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But I'm going to ask you to come up, and I'm going to pray for you and uh, for us this morning. God, again, I, I just pray that um, your spirit would open our hearts, um, our eyes, and our ears to, to understand the truth um, of this passage. God, we want to see deeper unity developed in our, in our church and uh, in this family. And so we pray that you'd use um, the preaching of your word uh, to catalyze that. Uh, be with Tony this morning. Be with us. We pray that in your name. So as we've been going through the book of Ephesians, we've hit one theme again and again, and that's the theme of division. We've talked about racial division, ethnic division, cultural division, political division, division. And we've talked about God's answer to that division. Um, maybe it's because we're going through this passage Maybe it's because we're in the middle of a political season. Maybe it's because we're in the middle of uh, a time of heightened racial tensions. But the theme of division has popped up in front of us more and more and more, right? How many of you are on social media of some kind? How many of you have not just like completely sworn it off? Seen many arguments in the last few months? In your Facebook feed, you know, you post something about someone who's hurting or, and then you get, you get responses about, well, this person's hurting too, right? Or you post something that even is maybe borderline political, maybe not political, but maybe has a hair, a hair to, to politics to it, and you get 12 responses about which candidate you should vote for, right? That's the season we live in. That's the world that we experience. It's one of constant division. And I would like to stand up here and say that the world is divided and that the church is not. Wouldn't it be nice to say that? But I can't. Division is everywhere. And so as I came to this passage and began preparing... Um, the theme in this passage is unity, how the church is unified, how we're brought together. And there was a struggle in me to say, well, where is the unity? If Christ has unified us, where is it? And I found myself at one point praying and asking the Lord, you know, Lord, it would be really nice, it would be really, really nice if you could, like, appear in the clouds and speak to us on the issues that divide us, right? 
if like the face of Jesus could appear. Anybody seen like the old Monty Python sketches? The clouds part and there's like the face of God and he speaks, you know, in a weirdly British voice um, to the people. Like there are times whenever I wish like, Lord, could you appear in the clouds and just like tell us who to vote for? Just tell us what the solution is to our racial strife. Tell us how we can be together in the church even though we differ in so many ways. And so I'm having a pity party because I'm still confused on some of these issues and I'm still searching and seeking, saying, Lord, where's your voice? And, and then I was convicted again because we have his voice. We have his words. And so the passage we read today, hear me on this, is not foreign to the divisions we experience today. As we talk about unity, as we talk about what the Lord has done, we're not talking about abstract concepts that only applied to a small church in the middle of Asia 2,000 years ago. We serve the same God. We have the same Holy Spirit. And the unity that Paul sought for the, the Ephesians to experience is the same unity that God today wants us to experience. So let's start back in the passage. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. It'll be up on the board. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And so Paul repeats himself to start out. He says, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. His intention is to speak to us and to tell us, look what I've sacrificed for what I believe. Right? He's a prisoner for the Lord, and now he's turning to the Ephesians, he's turning to us, and he's urging us to do something. Um, he has put his own life on the line for the truths that he's preached. And so now he's urging us to do something. What is that? It's to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Now let's start with the concept of calling here. We've been talking about calling through the last several weeks, and we see this beautiful picture where God looks at people, individuals, and he takes them out of their life, right? He calls them out of their sin, out of their old worldly ways of believing, and he brings them into a new kingdom, a church. He takes some out of the Gentiles and some out of the Jews, and he builds a church out of these groups. And we're told that that church is glorious and beautiful. And so if the worldly lives that people lived before were ugly and full of sin, now the image is one of a church, one of a kingdom that's glorious and bright and filled with grace and beauty. If at one time the two groups or the various groups were separated, Jew against Greek, men against women, rich against poor, now they've been brought together all into one family where everyone matters where everyone has value. And they've been given riches and power in Christ. 
that's been summed up in the idea of inheritance. God says to his people, because you're my children, you will receive from me an inheritance. And so their calling has been out of an old world into a new world, and it is a beautiful, glorious calling. And now Paul is urging them to walk in a manner that's worthy of that calling. Now we need to stop here on this idea of worthiness because we can get tripped up really easily, right? How many of you, by a show of hands, feel worthy today of God's love and affection and attention? We've got a theologically accurate crowd. No one raised their hand. Like, I don't feel worthy. You don't feel worthy. And if we throw feelings out of the window and say feelings don't matter, and we look at just the way we've lived our lives, if we asked, are we worthy of God? The answer would be a resounding no. We are not worthy of God. We're not worthy of God. And so whenever Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner that's worthy of God, what he's not saying is you need to live your life in such a good way that God notices you and celebrates you and therefore saves you. Right? Because there can be a temptation to read passages that urge us to work in a worthy way, and we think that somehow we have to muster up some kind of power, some kind of goodness that we don't have, that will earn God's love. Instead, what we see here in Paul's urging is not a call to be worthy so that we'll merit God's grace. It's a declaration that you've received God's grace, and because of that, your life should be affected. You should live differently. You should walk differently. If you have received the grace of God, if you've believed in him, if you've experienced the Holy Spirit in your life, like that should change you. And you should examine yourself so that as you walk throughout your day, as you, as you live from moment to moment, that you're not falling into old patterns. That you're not giving in to constant temptation, because they are constant, right? And so he's urging us, he's urging the Ephesians to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling to which we've been called. To aspire to live like Christ did. And he, he urges us to do so in a very specific way. And that's where we're going to move into verse, verse 2. And so he urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling we've been called. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. I'm going to guess that many of you have seen like old sports movies where it'll start with like some geeky kid who discovers a talent and then becomes elevated to some grand level of achievement, right? Or maybe you've seen Star Wars. There's the nerdy farmer boy that lives on the desert world who, who grows up to be the great Luke Skywalker, defeater of the evil empire. In our popular imagination, we have this concept of when we're called up, it's to something that is like physically glorious, the type of thing where we can puff out our chest, 
The type of thing where we can set up like an elite athlete on a podium and say, look at that power and that prowess. You ever listen to boxers talk to one another like in the big fights or even, even more so like the fake wrestlers? You know, I'm going to take you down, sucker. You know, it's kind of this, it's this arrogance that goes along with this elevation due to a calling. And so our tempting, uh, there can be another temptation to view uh, a calling to follow the Lord to accompany some kind of like puffed out chest. But we see the exact opposite in these verses. To live according, to live in a worthy way according to our calling is not to become the greatest, right? In the worldly sense of greatness. What's the calling? Humility gentleness and patience you know, I've never seen a wrestler give an interview where he he showed these qualities so the goal is to bear with one another to bear with one another it would be really nice if unity among any two people or any group of people could be smooth and seamless, right? I think of the closest relationship I have on, on this world is that with my wife, and one would think that maybe she, uh, in a perfect world, could have a seamless, you know, smooth experience dealing with me but she doesn't she has to bear with me any any spouse can relate to bearing with another spouse any little brother or big brother can relate to bearing with a little brother or little sister it's the same in the church paul's calling us to bear with one another that's an uncomfortable feeling. That requires effort. And he wants us to bear with one another in several ways. First off, with humility. Humility cares about the other before the self. Humility sees oneself in an accurate light. Humility is really, really hard because we all love ourselves an awful lot, don't we? We're called to bear with one another with humility and then also with gentleness. What struck me about this particular word is that in the moments whenever I'm truly bearing with someone, right? In the moments whenever I've got a conflict and I think the other person is wrong and I'm struggling with even wanting to be in the same room with them, whenever I'm truly bearing with them, gentleness is not in my heart. Right? So whenever my children are fighting and hitting each other and growling and screaming at one another because of some stupid toy, you know, misunderstanding, and as I, as I bear with them, and attempt to sort that out. What is in my heart is not, 
oh, honey, it'll be okay. Oh, honey, it'll be okay. Like, that's not in me. Aggression and frustration and self-righteousness is in me. Right? My guess is, is that whenever we're in the middle of a disagreement, a healthy disagreement with our spouse, many times gentleness is not what's in our heart. And if there are people in our church that we have disagreements with, frustrations over, my guess is is that gentleness is not the first thing to rise to the surface. And yet Paul urges us to walk in a manner that's worthy of our calling, and he says that that includes gentleness, the very thing that we don't feel. And then the last word that's about bearing with one another in love is patience. Long-suffering, if you look in older translations. The idea that the bearing isn't just for a little while. So if, again, if I'm going to use the illustration of my children, you know, bear with them once, bear with them twice, three times, a million It goes on and on. It's not a bearing that lasts for a little bit until I've run out of patience. My cup is full. No more bearing for you. Now wrath, right? It's not that. It's a patient, long-suffering bearing with one another. And so God calls us as the church to react to one another, to bear with one another, to walk with one another in a way that is humble and gentle and patient and loving. Then he goes on in verse 3 and says, Do this eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Um, this word, eager to maintain, is, is a hard word to, to get into English. Um, it carries connotations of desperation and of crisis. And so this isn't eager like, you know, oh, I'm eager to check the mail because my package is coming today. This is eager as in the world is in danger. Your family is in danger. Whenever Paul says... Be eager to maintain the unity of spirit. He recognizes that there can easily be a crisis in the church. That if this doesn't happen, that things go very badly, very quickly. And so he says, be eager to maintain. The word maintain points us to the fact that the unity of the spirit that we work towards is not one that we've established ourselves. Did you catch that? And so it's not like you and I, if we're different, sit down and we have rational disagreements and somehow because of the goodness within ourselves, we find a way to shake hands and create unity. Now the unity that we're to maintain is the unity that's crafted by the Spirit. It's in the spirit. That means the unity that is to be in the church 
the unity that believers are meant to feel between themselves is not of ourselves, it's of God. It's something that he's blessed us with. It's precious. And so we're to maintain it in the bond of peace. bond of peace paints a picture of the end of hostilities a lived out brotherhood Um, in Ephesus that would have looked like Jews and Greeks sitting down at the same table no longer no longer suspecting one another no longer accusing one another no longer crossing to walk to the other side of the street whenever they encounter one another Today, it looks like us caring when a black brother or sister feels accosted. It looks like us caring whenever there's someone in our church that's faced real abuse in their life. It means caring when we run into situations that aren't easy to parse, right? Um, Just a few weeks ago, uh, I work here in the Baptist building and we had the the sheriff's department and the state police kind of come over for a luncheon. This was before the latest round of incidents and and found hurting there. They're short-staffed and they're having an awful time with recruitment. And there are some brothers and sisters on the force there that are just really, they don't know how they're gonna keep doing their job Um, because every day is a fight. There are tangled messes in our country, tangled messes with no easy answers, and we have to love one another. If we're Christians, we have to love our black brothers and sisters and not accuse them of hyping up the situation like it's too big, because it's real. If we have brothers and sisters that are afraid for their lives doing their job, we have to love them and not pretend that that issue isn't real. The bond of peace in our church might not look like Jew and Greek, but there are issues today that threaten to tear us apart in very real ways, and if we don't have gentleness and humility and patience, and if we're not eager to maintain unity, it won't be maintained. There needs to be an end of hostilities, a desire for real brotherhood. So we're going to transition now into the second part of our passage. And I want to take this moment to recognize that there's some difficulty in telling us that we should be eager to maintain unity with humility and gentleness. A question that can arise out of that is maybe an obvious one to you. Um, Are you saying that we should tolerate everything? Are you saying that there are, uh, that that we should, we should sit down with people who are, you know, like hurtful? Like who are themselves abusing or doing hateful things and show patience? 
Like, it seems like you're saying that in the quest for unity, that we should show, that we should throw truth, like, right out the window. Right? That could be a response that comes in. It's a response that we hear all the time. The idea that the Bible teaches real truth. And you can't just ignore that in the name of some kind of, like, hippie aesthetic that we can all hold hands and sing, we are the world. Right? There are real things that are maybe worth dividing over is the argument. And then the other side comes and says, well, you just don't care about unity enough. If you really cared about unity, you wouldn't automatically be asking these kind of questions. If you took Paul's words seriously here, that we're to be eager to maintain the bond of peace, you'd lay down your arms a little bit, and you'd be willing to put up with a little bit of problems. And so two real sides emerge. You can see these throughout the churches today. A side that values unity to the exclusion of truth, and then a side that values truth to the exclusion of unity. And what we're about to see in this next section of our verses is that those two things go not apart, not on separate ends of the spectrum. There's not, I'm a Christian who's for unity, and I'm a Christian who's for truth. But what Paul teaches clearly in the next verses is that there are two things that go together. That we don't have truth apart from unity, and we don't have unity apart from truth. We have to have unity and truth. Unity in truth. A truth that's empowered by our unity and a unity that's established in the truth. And Paul goes into a few statements, and he states these firmly, starting in verse 4. He says this, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. And so... On the side of the unity, he emphasizes saying, there's only one body, local, everywhere, for all time. There is only one church. That includes us in all our orthodox understanding of the Bible and of theology. And that includes Christians from the first century who were true Christians that when you go back and read, you're like, oh, I, don't, I don't know about some of that right? The church has changed through the years, and if we say that there is one body, one universal church, then we have to agree that even the crazy uncles and even the strange cousins are unified with us in one body. And so the person who stands up and says unity is important can say we are one body, not separate bodies. You can't tear us apart from the church in history. We can't do that. But our body, as we'll see more and more later, is not a vague one. The church is defined as those who are Christ's. And even though the church reaches through time, it reaches across the world, 
the body is a defined body. When we get to heaven and we rejoice together, it will be filled with individuals. Like not a vague mass of people without faces, but real people that lived real lives that God really saved. He says there's one spirit. And so we can say that we have a common empowerment. We have a common life that's given to us by one spirit, the Holy Spirit. It's not that some Christians are empowered by one spiritual force and another group are empowered by a different spiritual force. You could look at the, the range of Christianity in the world and you could say, surely these are different religions sometimes because the clothes are so different and the practices of worship are so different. But there's one spirit. The same spirit that empowers me is the spirit that empowers the Christian in Africa. The, the spirit that descends as we worship and fills us as we pursue the Lord is the same spirit that joins Chinese Christians that meet in secret. One spirit. Even though our experiences look very different. One spirit. But again, that spirit is a spirit that's defined. We know who he is. It's not a mystery. The scriptures reveal him to us. And then we have one hope. That means we're all looking for the same thing as Christians. We're all looking for the same thing. We have the same needs. But that hope is defined. It's the kingdom of heaven. A new heavens, a new earth. Redemption. Our adoption as sons and daughters. Consummation. As we appear with Christ at the end. And all pain and sadness is wiped away. He goes on in verse 5. He says, there's one Lord, that's Jesus, who seeks out people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We serve one Lord. There are not different Jesuses. So all people who worship Jesus worship, hopefully, the same Jesus. Jesus as he truly was in history, the redeemer of mankind. We have one faith. That is the gospel. And it's available to all who would believe. And it's not defined by aesthetics, by the way things look. It's a faith that was defined even in ancient times. Um, often, um, churches throughout history have uh, recited together the Apostles' Creed as a summarization of our faith. Um, it's incredibly early. Um, before Christians had the entire New Testament compiled into one place, they gathered together in worship on Sunday and recited together what they called the faith. This is our faith. So it's actually going to be up on the board. I thought it would be a good practice for us to recite this together. And so if you kind of want to join me, this is the one faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. 
He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. And so we are unified in one faith, but that is a faith that is defined, a faith that has parameters, that includes what we spoke. It is a universal faith. That's where the word Catholic with the small c comes in. It is a universal faith, a Catholic faith. We are unified in one faith, but it is a defined faith. There's unity and there's truth. And then there's one baptism. One baptism. That means it doesn't matter who performed the baptism. Was it Paul? Was it Peter? Was it one of our elders? Was it somebody who lived four states away? It doesn't matter. We have one baptism. But it's a defined baptism. It's not a mere washing of the flesh. It's not a a mere ritual. It's a baptism into Christ. The formula we say is we're baptizing you in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the picture of baptism, being lowered down into the water and brought up, is the picture of being buried with Christ and raised with him. We're all united into the same Christ through one baptism. Then finally in verse 6, there's one God and Father of all who is over all, and through all, and in all. We have one creator. He made everything we see and everything in this room. We have one father. Every Christian, whenever we say the prayer, our father, who art in heaven, are praying to the same one. And again, he's defined. We know who he is because he reveals himself in his word. There are none, no creators, no gods outside the one God, the Father, that we worship. And it says he is over all and through all and in all. Paul urges us to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And as he speaks to the Ephesians and as he speaks to the other churches, he's picturing people who worship the same God, knowing that that God lives in them and is among them. And he calls us to think of ourselves a little lower and to think of others a little higher, that we might maintain that unity with people that God loves just as much as he loves us. 
So in Christ, we're unified. We're brought together. All the boundary markers of culture and ethnicity and football teams are all washed away. We are unified. Cultural and ethnic peculiarities that used to be primary, the things that identified us, I'm a straight white American male, right? Those are not our identities. Our identities are in Christ. Surely Christ sets boundaries around us on how we practice and live. That's obvious from the scriptures. Whenever we get to chapter 5 in Ephesians, we're going to be talking about things like sexual immorality, and we take that seriously. But we acknowledge that our identity is not in our sexuality. Right? That that's a false category. Our identities are in Christ. They're not in being white or black primarily. They're in Christ. We've been caught up into something beautiful called the church. We've been called up into that beautiful kingdom, and now we're called to maintain that beauty and to take that responsibility seriously. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, even as we stumble, even as some of us make stupid mistakes. That is our calling. That is what we're to do this week. We are to cling to our common identity, our common faith. And so I don't know um, how maybe you individually need to put this into practice this week. I don't know if you've had division with someone, arguments with someone, that you need to go to them and you need to say, look, I struggle, you struggle, but we need to find a way to love one another. I don't know where you are, but I would plead with you this week, be urgent to maintain unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you don't know Jesus, if you don't know Jesus, you can't have unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ because you're, you're not in the family, then I would urge you, the faith we believe in is for you too. If you would believe, if you would follow Christ, if you would just say, Lord, I love you, I need you, he would come to you. And he would save you and you could join with him. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you. We certainly don't deserve you. We are not worthy of you. We're not worthy of even the unity that you've given us. We are divisive people. People that are full of prejudices. People that are full of strife. We want our own way. We don't want what's good for everybody. We want to experience blessings and power. And we avoid gentleness and patience. Lord, we thank you for loving us anyway, even though we don't like any of those things, even though we're messed up on a thousand levels. Lord, we thank you for sending your son to die for us. We thank you for redeeming us. Lord, we ask that you would empower us, that you'd help us to live in ways that are worthy of what you've called us to. Lord, create in us new categories of gentleness. Give us a new spirit of, of humility. Help us to do everything that we do in love and worship and honor towards you. Pray this in Jesus' name.